Welcome to the Sweet Tea Shakespeare After Hours, where we offer you in-depth conversations, insider insights, and a sneak peek behind the scenes. Good morning. Well, it's morning for me. It's almost afternoon for you, right? It's almost afternoon. I'm getting there. <laughs> yeah, where it is still early in the day. All sorts of horrible things could still happen here, and it would just be morning in California. Uh, good things should happen too, theoretically, right? Good things could happen. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going on vacation. That's good. That's exciting. Uh, where are you going? In quotation marks. Yeah, I know. What will you be doing on vacation? I'm going to Asheville for a week uh, in the mountains of North Carolina, and then I'm going further into the mountains of North Carolina to seek a social isolation. Wow. All right. My hope is that any disease I could confront will be drowned by... Uh, alcohol and and uh visits to breweries all right and then in the mountains i hope to see no one okay Let's see how that goes well that's fun you know enjoy that yeah Looking um, it's my anniversary today happy anniversary thank you i've been been married um 17 years Goes by fast. She's the same person. Good job. That's an achievement. It is. I agree with you. It is an achievement to be celebrated. That's great. Hooray. <laughs> what you been up to? Um, I mean, nothing super exciting that I can talk about. <laughs> um, nothing to speak of, really. Just getting through life here. Uh, working on various writing projects and, uh, you know, our social isolation. Uh, just a weird summer with the kids, like, because they can't really do anything much. <laughs> so that makes it hard, but uh, we're doing okay. Uh, watching lots of uh, movies and stuff. Um, we watched the uh, Eurovision movie on Netflix last night. Have you seen this? Do you know what this is? Okay. It's a, uh, it's a Will Ferrell movie um, made for Netflix. Uh, and uh, it's pretty funny. Um, are you familiar with the Eurovision Song Contest? Yeah. Like that okay. much. Well, this is an American film uh, about the Eurovision Song Contest starring Will Ferrell and uh, Rachel McAdams as uh, two people from Iceland who've grown up in a small Icelandic village who, since they were children, have sung together and um, desperately want to be in the win the Eurovision Song Contest. That's their big dream. <laughs> and I mean, whether you find Will Ferrell's shtick to be funny or not is really going to go a long way towards, you know, just, you know, uh, you liking the movie or not, because it's sort of very much in line with his sort of uh, 
angry, egotistical doofuses doing ridiculous things. Um, sort of mode of of, uh, of of film. A little bit less of an edge than than some of the more egregious examples of that. But it, it, it it's funny and. Um, it's not, you know, it's not perfect. It's uh, as far as Will Ferrell comedies go, I, I tend to really particularly like the high absurdist ones, um, like Anchorman or uh, Step Brothers, the best, where their sort of unhinged impulses are given total free reign. And this is much more sort of uh, Pedestrian is not the right word, but normal. It's a movie that normal people could watch, but there's just enough weirdness in it to also be enjoyable. It's not like A plus material from them, but it's fun. And Rachel McAdams is very, very good in it too. It's a they have a fun dynamic. So, all right, I'm I, putting it on my list. Yeah, I, I recommend it. A signal. Available on Netflix for everyone to watch now. And uh, it does feature a lot of past Eurovision Song Contest winners, which is funny. Like there's this extended song sequence that features a whole bunch of them, which if you're a big fan of Eurovision, presumably it would be very exciting. I only happen to know who like a couple. It, it took about it's a long song sequence. It took about a minute for me to realize, oh, all of these people, I think, are Eurovision winners. <laughs> so it would it would probably play like gangbusters in a very different way to somebody who was familiar with these people. Um, and the novelty of Eurovision in and of itself is it, it adds a dimension of weirdness to it to probably people who who aren't familiar with it. If you ever watch Eurovision, though, it's it's an extremely accurate portrayal of what that thing is, which, if you've never seen it before, is going to be astounding that it is not one bit heightened from what the actual thing is at all. <laughs> so go on watching that and then maybe uh, go down a YouTube rabbit hole for Eurovision because it's truly Amazing. It's one of these things that really gives you this sense of like the sensibilities of, uh, you know, the pop, the pop and popular cultural sensibilities of um, of Europe, broadly speaking, are very, very different from Americans. <laughs> like, it's like, oh, we we we're not like normal in any real sense. You know, we're we're just what we are and they are what they are, which is a really different thing. So. Check it out. It's fun. You've been consuming any interesting media recently? I consumed nothing. Ah. I haven't consumed anything. <laughs> nothing. Right. Well, fair enough. That's probably good. It means you've been productive. <laughs> I hope. I hope to get into Perry Mason. Yeah, that looks interesting, right? Um... Did you ever watch the Raymond Burr Perry Mason series when yeah, you were like, a kid, I like in syndication? In syndication, when I was like a very young person. I've never seen a single episode of the original Perry Mason, so I have no emotional connection to this. But I do like, um, oh, what's his name? What's the actor's Matthew, name? Matthew Reese. Yeah, I do like Matthew Reese. I uh, enjoyed the Americans very much and liked the Mister Rogers movie last year. Mm -hmm. uh, 
And uh, so I am interested in seeing that. It's interesting because uh, Robert Downey Jr. and his wife are the producers on that. And originally he was supposed to play that part when they sort of were developing it, which might have been interesting. In this weird era where movie stars are doing like the biggest movie stars on Earth just like pop into TV. Every once in a while, I have a friend who's a working actress who it irritates to no end what television is like right now because you know 10 years ago she would like a person with her resume and in her career position would certainly be like a series regular on a sitcom or something like or a tv show at this point uh a drama or whatever uh and uh, now all those parts are going to movie stars, which is upsetting. In our weird little constricted entertainment economy, where there aren't as many opportunities in movies anymore. Because they don't make anything. Yeah, I know. We're developing, well, as you know, I'm in the live entertainment business, and uh, nobody's figured it out yet. But, but, but. The, the thing that makes me most frustrated, actually, is not that we haven't figured it out, because it's a complex problem, but, but the, like, um, the, the, the groups of people who get angry at the other groups of people who are trying to figure it out. Do you know what I mean? Like, there's this yeah. whole segment of, of the population that's like, we're going to do nothing for three years. Uh, or whatever it happens to be, and I'm like, that's not that's like that's a really great privileged, endowed, often place to operate from, <laughs> and um, right. uh, I just think there there has to be some sort of place in the middle. That's me. Do you find you're get are you getting a lot of pushback from people, or are I'm there personally both? not getting any pushback directly? Mm -hmm. But also, we're being pretty conservative about. Yeah, it seems to me. Take things, but, but uh, the circles I run in certainly there are very very strong opinions that are that are sort of like um, like pushing you know like we don't need to be no no live events whatsoever it's unethical it's all of this and and I think I I just think there's there's a, a step back from that that also makes sense yeah and that is responsible. Well, yeah, I mean, you would think so. It's a frustrating thing about the moment that we're living in right now is that it feels like everybody's position seems to get like pushed to weird poles in some ways. And I mean, I, I couldn't say this for sure, but I, I it seems to me that what you're talking about is partly a politicized response as well right now where people feel this need to sort of hold certain lines just to emphasize to people <laughs> that you know this is the right thing to do and it, it's just making i don't know for massive dysfunction in every sector of our <laughs> country <laughs> that's super fun too um yeah i don't know i mean you probably saw this like the uh that Florida town hall that they had where um, a whole bunch of people were getting up and uh, angrily 
you know, denouncing the the plan to have people in the town wear masks. Mm. Did you see this? Mm. You know what I'm talking about? Well, it, it's easily found like on on Twitter or just, you know, lurking around on the Internet. Um, and I mean, it's like. People like it's a group of women um, who. Uh, sort of one after the other got up and just angrily screamed about why wearing masks is this horrible thing. And um, it's funny because somebody cut it together uh, with footage from Parks and Recreation of people sitting in the uh, of responses to uh, listening to people in town halls like say crazy things. And it just, you know, doesn't uh, fits right in there. Slots right in. Um but it's sort of this example of it's like, what? how do you have such strong feelings about this? It's like this, this people, it, you couldn't be asked to do less. Do you know what I mean? It's like, as, as far as the thing goes, it's like, just put a thing on your face when you go outside. It's really not that hard and apparently could do a lot. But like people just have these super intense, strong, strong feelings. And it's like, I don't think you actually have strong feelings about this. Right. This isn't what you have strong feelings about. You have strong feelings about something else. And this is the thing that, you know, you're using, you're, you're diverting that into. And it's like, and, and that just seems like all of our conversations now. It's like, you know, uh, people getting mad at you guys for doing anything. It's like, you don't really think this is a bad idea. You think something else is a bad idea. <laughs> but this is the thing that you're using to make that argument. And, like these dumb proxy arguments for like bigger political philosophical disagreements is a frustrating, uh, you know, thing in the moment. I don't know. Yeah. And it, it, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's what you're saying. It's a, it's people are in a moment where they do not have control. No one does and are looking for, um, opportunities to, express and assert the the control they have which is really over their own opinion and that's about it yeah kind of you can kind of control your response i mean some people can but um and that's that's kind of what we're seeing is that yeah i i think that's right and you know it, it 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 is a moment where people i think feel so helpless and so all you can do is you know try and <laughs> I, 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 you know, there. It's the same thing I think that leads to conspiracy sort of theories in general. Is people uh, looking for some way to get a handle on what are essentially sort of inexplicable or or things that don't really have any meaning? You know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> and and that's terrifying, right? To live in a completely disordered world that doesn't where, you know, awful things happen and they don't actually mean anything is is very upsetting. And so I think people find comfort in saying, you know, it's the fault of, you know, whatever evil force or whatever, or it's a representative of some horrendous thing. And it's like, yeah, bad thing maybe just happened. <laughs> and that. That's not satisfying in any way, but I, my personal feelings, it might be closer to the truth than anything else. 
So, oh, that's super fun. You know what else I've been watching? Uh, started watching the sequel to The Shining last night, the Doctor Sleep movie. Did you ever? It just hit HBO Max this weekend. Um, came out. Are you are you aware of this movie? Mm-hmm. It yeah. I asked because it did not do well in theaters. Uh, Doctor Sleep. It was kind of a um, kind of a a flop. It turns out to be an interesting film, especially uh, because it's doing this fascinating thing where it's based on Stephen King's uh, sequel that he wrote to The Shining, Dr. Sleep. Um, and Stephen King famously uh, does not like Stanley Kubrick's uh, Shining film uh, adaptation starring Jack Nicholson. Uh but um, the movie, Dr. Sleep, adapts um, The Shining or adapts the Dr. Sleep book with Ewan McGregor as a grown up. Danny Torrance is the kid in the uh, original book and film. But aesthetically, it is a uh, re- it's not a remake. It's a direct sequel to Stanley Kubrick's Shining and it's sort of him marrying together Stephen King uh Stephen King's sort of preferred I think approach to the the shining world and universe with uh the aesthetics of of um Stanley Kubrick and it's it's a fascinating film Mike Flanagan made it he's the guy who did the um Haunting of Hill House um miniseries on Netflix did you see that it, it, you know, he's not. I, I should say I saw it in the daytime on purpose. That's, well, yeah, that's a good call. <laughs> that is, it, uh, it's a terrifying miniseries, right? The, I mean, that it, it, it's hard to find something that's genuinely unsettling. And Flanagan, you know, he's not Kubrick in terms of um, his visual style. He's perfectly fine, you know, uh, visually. But you know, Kubrick is Kubrick, whatever. And so, in that way, there feels something a little sacrilegious about trying to make a sequel to you know the to a kubrick movie especially one as beloved as as the shining and uh but flanagan is really good with um with horror surrounding children and also uh sort of legacy familial issues like that that's something he did particularly well in um the haunting of hill house and it it's a skill set that applies really quite well to dr sleep uh which is a really irritating title every time i say it i I like find myself cringing a little bit internally but that aside (laughs) it's good it's good i recommend it and for fans of the shining it um really pays off and or the shining film kubrick's the shining as well as the book, uh, it pays off in in really interesting ways at the end of the film. The director's cut is available alongside the um, theatrical cut on HBO Max, and I would recommend the director's cut uh, for anyone interested. And you can kind of, it's three hours long. You you can watch it in chunks, but it's uh, it's worth looking at. It's a good film. All right, it's something else on my list. Add it to the list. Hooray. Um, and actually, what we were planning on sort of discussing for 
the main bulk of our conversation or discussion here today. Uh, something else to add to the list. Alexander that, Hamilton. That's right. Uh, Disney Plus is going to be releasing their um, filmed uh, production of, well, their film version of the original production of Hamilton, starring Lynn Manuel Miranda and the original cast uh, on Disney Plus. Uh, and that is happening on the 3rd of July, which is just a few days away from us. So we thought it was a good opportunity to talk about Hamilton. Uh, Jeremy, you want to kick us off? What are your thoughts? Um, I love it. I think it's the, how do I say this? We're talking about Hamilton a lot this week. And I, and, and I have lots to say about it. But nothing I don't think that's ha that's not been said before. Sure. Um, but at at the uh, at the risk of of being too much of a fanboy, I mean I just think it's maybe the most important piece of popular culture in the last decade. Uh, and um, uh, on top of that, it's just really really good, like almost impeccably so. And, uh, uh, yeah, and the, 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 the thing that I think I appreciate most about this particular moment is that, um, the creator and distributors of the piece recognized the moment and, like, changed their approach with regard to how it's going to be released and their business model essentially entirely uh, in relatively short order to get it in front of eyeballs um, now and uh, we didn't know they didn't know at the time I'm not sure they knew at the time that uh, I can't remember if it was like right before the George Floyd stuff um, might have been a few weeks before but but I, I yeah the announcement that it was coming to Disney plus did happen uh, on that day did happen before all of this happened yeah, yeah. so it, so I, yeah because my memory is that they were sort of it was the it was a gift of response to uh coronavirus and it turns out that it's going to be a has yeah a lot more because of the moment additional potential applicant you know interesting thematic resonances with our current moment uh yeah the original plan for this particular thing was that it was going to come out in theaters i believe next year uh was the intention and it was going to be a theatrically distributed film uh by disney uh and yeah as you say it was um they changed their plans because of the coronavirus situation to put it out on disney plus which uh I agree it was a good idea. It's a good thing to do. I, I am in agreement with you about um, Hamilton in general. It's and and your uh, assertion that it might be, you know, the most important uh, piece of pop culture in the last 10 years. I think there's a strong case to be made for that. Um, you know, that doesn't sound hyperbolic. It might even be you could make a, you know, you you might even be able to make an argument of the 21st century so far in the United States. There's been no other, 
you know, piece of art that's as um, important, or at least pop cultural, uh, you know, pop art that's as important or meaningful or influential as Hamilton. As fascinating that it's a piece of theater, certainly it's the most uh, important piece of theater mm-hmm. for. I mean, I, I don't know how far back you would say. Important's a hard thing to say. I mean, um, it, it depends on how we're describing important. But it's the most uh, popular thing that's happened in theater since. I, I mean, the last thing that had any kind of comparable impact on pop culture that I can imagine or broad, you know, culture is rent back in the mid nineties and Hamilton's far, far larger than that ever was. You know, I think that you have to go back to almost mid century to find, you know, a, a, a piece of theater that was as broadly disruptive in the culture as, as Hamilton has been. Right. Yeah. I mean, there are other, there are others that come to mind. I mean, in terms of, but none of them are this big, as you say. Book of Mormon was the thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, um, yes, that's and, true. And, you know, you've got Les Miserables in there, and you have Cats in there. And <laughs> yeah. The, that was uh, a joke. That was a joke. No, well, it, it's it, – they're reasonable. I mean, that's the thing. They're, they're, they are reasonable things to But to, it is. The thing that's surprising about. about is what you point, point to, which is here is this piece of theater in a sort of post-theater culture – um, mm-hmm. The first, it truly in the the first, uh, not the first, but the 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 one that's had the most impact in the digital age, yeah. is this piece. Um, yeah. and of course, it is a piece that incorporates the digital age because uh, of its music. I mean, its its genre mm-hmm. is sort of necessarily built around um, uh, around technology in ways that some of those others aren't. That aren't built around the specific technology of hip hop and um, and uh, so it, anyway, I mean part no, of you're right. about about uh, Hamilton is that it's it's everything that's been happening sort of in edge theater um, for for a while now. I mean uh, at least twenty years, well, particularly in terms of its staging conventions. Yeah. It, it and uh, and here it is, sort of. So I mean, the material is is so good that it sort of culminated. It's that's what I'm trying to say. It's the culmination of everything Edge Theater has been trying to do for a while. Um, and uh, yeah, it I mean, define what you really mean. Really what good. What do you mean by Edge Theater when you I say mean, that? Um, uh, in the the theater, the off Broadways, um, the mm. the Village Theater, the the avant garde places. So the in in theater, the the move has been. I th- I think this is right. I'm willing to be corrected, but I think the general trend has been, while film technology has been going towards the spectacular, theater the theaters have done one of two things. They've gone the sort of commercial. Uh, Disney route. I mean, we're gonna we have to talk about Disney sure. when we have to talk when we talk about this now. They've gone the high production, high spectacular route, or they've gone this um, disintegrated 
post-structural. Um, it's like um, your Ivan Van Hove sort yeah, of broken out. Um, and this is that. Brechtian it's actually a marriage of, of both of those things, I think. Um, but but it, it it is the culmination of that second kind, I think. Yeah. No, its staging is very much in keeping with that kind of uh, highly theatrical and minimalist and, you know, um, the, those uh, theatrical design uh, trends. Uh, like, um, so, yeah, it, it is very much in line with that, while at the same time married to this sort of unabashedly pop uh, sensibility. In part, that's conveyed through the music. But then um, it's interesting, though, because it's like, while, you know, the, the thing that is interesting about it is it's it's pretty good hip hop music. Um, it's pretty good you know uh for that which is a tough thing to do like um musical theater that draws on popular musical styles uh is famously you know that you can get good theater you can get pretty good songs out of it for theater for theater but there's always an asterisk next to it a little bit it's like you know the theater version of rock is never really rock you know what I mean? And theatrical versions of hip hop. Uh, I, I I don't think anyone's ever really done a credible job of it up to this point um, on this scale before. And it's legitimately good. Um, but maybe there is a little bit of an ad. I mean, the thing is also this got actual radio airplay, like the songs, you know, um, and honestly, you do have to go back to the 80s since you can find uh, to find any hits that like legitimate radio hits that came from a show to, you know, a show. Uh, and that would have been in the middle of the sort of, you know, uh, Andrew Lloyd Webbery, Bobel Schoenberg uh, um, or the or chess, <laughs> which while we're talking about it. Uh, and the Eurovision Song Contest, too. Um, that era has one of the craziest show tunes ever to make it into, like, actual radio airplay from Chess. It's the uh, the sort of One Night in Bangkok song. And I, every time I hear that song on the radio, like on an oldies thing, it, it blows my mind that that song became a major hit. It's a fun one to listen to. I don't deny that at all. Written by the, uh, um, you know, male hat. Well, written by the songwriters of ABBA. Uh, and uh, and uh, they didn't do the lyrics on it. But, you know, it was it was their music. And um, you can hear that in there. Yeah, Eurovision Song Contest winners, ABBA. Um, and uh, what's amazing about it is the lyrics of that thing are so specific, so, so specific to that play and the events happening in it. And it has this great hooky sort of um, chorus. It's like one night in Bangkok and, you know, the people singing, you can hear that and like rest on it. But I cannot imagine what any normal person in the 80s was thinking when the lyrics started on that. And the guy's talking about chess and he's talking about like European uh, resort villages and all this. It's like, what do you think this song is? 
what do you think this song is to like a normal person? And they probably aren't listening, but you just imagine somebody in the 80s driving in their car and that comes on and they're like, what, what, what is this? What is happening right now? Uh, <laughs> and, you know, they're, they're so specifically, you know, to the uh, related to the context of the thing. Um, and there's a little bit of that happening with Hamilton as well. It, like the songs are are very specifically, you know, specific to the story. I think part of what helped as well is that he did like the um, side concept album where uh, actual sort of hip hop artists um, did variations on the songs that stripped some of the more specific story elements out of them. And those did get a lot of radio play as well. So. It's an interesting phenomenon, but for all of its like attachment to hip hop culture and whatnot, the the thing that's striking to me about it is that it is um, formally, you know, very traditionally musical theater uh, ish, and uh, the comparisons to those '80s musicals like the Andrew Lloyd Webber or um, Les Mis, you know, uh, musicals is that it's clearly heavily influenced by by that particular era of um, musical theater. It's entirely sung through, not like your Sondheim shows where there are plays and then, you know, um, or, you know, Sondheim who harkens back to the Rodgers and Hammerstein um, model where there are plays with songs dropped in. Um, Lin-Manuel Miranda is clearly sort of aligning himself more with that sort of 80s, um 80s version of musical theater which is entirely sung through mm -hmm. like uh cats like les mis um and the album is you know similar to those as well the hamilton soundtrack because it's the entire play on the soundtrack if you enjoy the work of sweet tea shakespeare the number one thing you can do is log on to patreon.com slash sweet tea shakes and make a monthly pledge. Those pledges start at $5 uh, and they go up to $500. Actually, you can set whatever amount you want. At certain levels, there are great perks, including in-person tickets. Uh, and those include all digital access throughout the year. So if we have a streaming event, a streaming concert um, that's that normally you would pay for, patrons at the $20 level just get in they just get in it's uh, delightful um, but that is the greatest way that you can show support to Sweet Tea Shakespeare and help us continue to do the work of this podcast and so many of the other things that we do throughout the year you know I, I don't know that there's a more you know going back to what we were saying it, it's interesting to watch that become this like super consequential piece of art to to younger people in particular and i can't think and to the way that it's created lin-manuel miranda as a celebrity i i i think correct me if i'm wrong but i i don't think there's anybody else in the history of american entertainment who is a comparable figure to that guy barbara streisand right is the closest in my mind Maybe, yeah, sure. That's a reasonable comparison, except that she didn't, you know, come out of like she didn't write theater. Yeah, you yeah, know, no, no, I, yeah. But in terms of like, um, 
sort of instant flash in the pan. You know what I mean? Um, well, and then, and who was the writer of her own? You know, I mean, it, the thing that's nuts about him is that he's, yeah, he's not a great singer, but he's a good performer. You know what I mean? And he had ambitions as an actor, you know, that were, that he pursued parallel to his, you know, um, work as a songwriter and, uh, and theatrical writer as well. Um, that, you know, he didn't like choose. You remember, <laughs> I, I, it's funny to watch, you know, watch TV shows from many years ago that Lin-Manuel Miranda shows up in as a, you know, as a, as a featured player in like the episode of the Sopranos uh, where um, Christopher is in Los Angeles trying to make a movie and it, <laughs> and Lin-Manuel Miranda has this little featured moment where he's a bellhop at a hotel. Uh, this is the same um, episode with Lauren Bacall and it getting pushed over into the streets by the by the thugs, uh, but he has this funny little moment. It's like, yeah, Lin Manuel Miranda was just like a jobbing actor, while at the same time he was working on becoming, you know, the most important musical theater figure in the century. I mean, it's or in the twenty first century so far. It's fascinating. Uh, and then to have created this weird little niche for himself where he's a legit celebrity celebrity, mm -hmm. um, primarily for a piece of theater. I mean, he's obviously stepped into some film stuff. It's interesting, the marriage between him and Disney at this point, too, because he's clearly, you know, has a fairly is happy to have this fruitful partnership with them as well between this and like writing Moana's music and singing on that soundtrack and then also uh doing the mary poppins sequel and so obviously he's happy to be working with them the biggest entertainment company on earth slash in history uh you know it, it's it's a fascinating thing you know I, one of the other so i mean that's all the the sort of stuff surrounding it. What's striking to me about the material itself, you know, it gets at something interesting about him as an artist to me is uh, he is sort of daring and um, avant-garde is probably saying too much, but he's, you know, experimental and on the edge of, like you say, sort of drawing from these, uh, artistically daring sort of theatrical trends while at the same time being very mainstream mm -hmm. and the, yeah, I mean, the, the material is mainstream and yeah the, the um i mean it's like what what a like a uh sort of new york times bestseller book yeah it's based on a um was it is it walter isaacson and my no that's no, not right not. no it's not the other guy <laughs> Yeah, um, based on a book that was a bestseller. And it's, about... um, I mean, for, for me, it's, uh, um, with another creator, it's a, it's a, it's Schoolhouse Rock. You know? You yeah, know I mean? it could be if it's not. 
and this is and it certainly has those moments where like the the sort of teacher part is um almost ron now. thank you kelly yeah, well, yeah thank you um, the um with the teacher parts are are there like and passionately so and um he's just got enough balance that that it doesn't become that yeah, I mean, I think that's a result of his talent, right? He's uh -huh. got a prodigious talent as a lyricist and as a, you know, songwriter as well. He was, um, interestingly, Steve, one of Stephen Sondheim's protégés. Uh, he consulted with Sondheim um, when they did the uh, that production of West Side Story with certain sections in Spanish as well he worked with him on that and I, I guess just worked with him in general so he carries with him you know and to have that imprimatur is a pretty impressive thing like obviously Sondheim is as a songwriter uh incredibly respected rightly so um and if you know if he was gonna choose someone to like say you know uh you know, carry forth with this, right? Uh, to find a successor, he he really picked the right guy. It, it would assume, it would seem, and, and so it, it does make that go down easier. Like whatever didactic aspects to it there might be, work because it's just lyrically fun. You know, I mean, he has that sort of Shakespearean thing um, where he does the high low mix really well. You know, uh, which is you know, reaching for lofty themes and ideas, but also marrying it with, uh, with, you know, pop culturally accessible also, you know, he's not afraid to go for dumb jokes that, uh, you know, that work and stuff, you know, it's, it's, that's tough to pull off. And he, he really do, does it. I mean, he's an enormously talented person. Um, but it is striking because it's all, in the name of something that's that's fairly mainstream um, and traditional in terms of its, you know, feelings about America, I, it's complicated, obviously, by the fact, you know, that there there is some criticism of uh, America writ large in there, um, but it's essentially sort of celebratory of the American dream and American potential in ways that, you know, weirdly put it out of step in some ways with the tenor of the moment, uh, which is interesting. Like there is this healthy, robust sort of criticism of um, Hamilton, which I think we're going to see more of in the coming weeks when it, it finally hits and becomes this object of, of cultural discussion where a lot, there's going to be a heavy wave of pushback. Get ready for all of those think pieces, um, you know, about why Hamilton is not good. And in, in that way, there's something very shrewd, I think, about uh, putting it out right now, too, or serendipitous, maybe, um, because I think that Hamilton's always going to be very popular. It's going to go down in history as, you know, um, as one of the most important pieces of pop, you know, pop art of, of this century, certainly. Uh, but 
the window for when Hamilton, as it exists right now, could have been created and come out, like, is is closing. And, and it was, uh, it was narrow to begin with. Yeah, that's right. It, it, it is, and to me, um, I mean, to me, it's it's uh, it's it's um, it's Obama art. Do you know what I mean? I mean, yeah, like it is in the way that um, the the and I feel this way actually about the Kennedys too. I mean, there was a window of time when the when when the 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 Kennedys in the White House occupied sort of national symbolic status and the art that was generated at that time. And I know. I know Hamilton was started before. before yeah, but it, but it took you know, shape. It, yeah, it it was given voice. It was given a platform. I literally at the White House. Um, yeah. The uh, in ways that uh, could only have happened in the Obama during that moment. Yeah, yes. and you know, part of its ascendancy in popular culture, I think, was very much tied to that moment. You know, this. Um, you know, what Obama's presidency really. Uh, represented uh, culturally, artistically, was this, you know, and as a political figure, he married a uh, a sort of old-fashioned idea of America and American um, patriotism with um, a new aesthetic presentation, <laughs> part of which is, like, so basic that it's stupid. It's like, he was a black man. This is aesthetically different. But, uh, you know, it recontextualized all of that, but it also uh, all of that sort of traditional stuff, uh, those traditional ideals, traditional ideas about, um, you know, what America stands for and reclaimed them, you know, um, and said, we, we you can still have all of this uh, and also move forward into the future. That was the promise of Obama's presidency. Uh, and, you know, th that clearly seems to have been rejected <laughs> by the culture, that idea, both on the right with, from people who refuse to sort of buy into that idea in the first place, but also on the left from people who I think, um, you know, got their feelings hurt <laughs> to put it glibly, um, you know, and uh, really sort of were disabused of their idealism. And, you know, now it's interesting at this moment, like Obama is, and I think that honestly, Hamilton is going to occupy a similar position, which is to say Obama is beloved on the left, particularly, but also broadly, like from non-ideological people, people have good thoughts and feelings towards him generally. You know, absolutely despised on the right, but what are you going to do? That almost isn't worth talking about. Um, but the response to people on the left who feel warmly towards him, but really, well, most feel warmly towards him. Some feel he's problematic. And on the sort of bleeding edge of the left, they absolutely despise him. Right. I mean, if you go and look at sort of, uh, you know, sort of, American Marxist Twitter um, and a lot of the sort of Bernie people, uh, they just hate Obama so much. And I think that Hamilton is going to interestingly sort of 
occupy a similar place, which is to say we'll be broadly beloved and like have a warm place in the hearts of many people on the left and interestingly on the right as well. Like Hamilton, I think, is broadly more popular than Obama, <laughs> um, but absolutely despised by, uh, you know, by a certain contingent, you know, a uh, contingency of people largely on the left. And I think that that's where Hamilton's going to land right now, um, because for all of its, uh, you know, anybody who doesn't know about this uh, in Hamilton, and I can't imagine anyone listening to this doesn't know, but I'll say it anyway. Uh, you know, the interesting conceit of Hamilton from a staging perspective is that all of the uh, roles of um the americans uh and the people on the american side uh who would have who were all white people are played by people of color in the production uh and it does something weirdly you know it, it is a radical idea that race becomes a signifier of um radicalism right that that's the idea and the only people who are white in the show well not the only people there are dancers who um but the only named characters who are played by white people are on the british side in in the production uh which again i don't know you could get away with something like that necessary i mean it's doing something dangerous in an interesting artistic way with with race you know as this uh signifier of meaning right i mean that's that's a risky interesting piece of um uh staging and an artistic conceit that would feels much more dangerous in this moment of heightened awareness of race again another thing that you, you feel like hamilton got in under the wire being able to do what it did there at all. I mean, not not that, you know, it, it's doing it in such a way where it's not like, where the politics of it aren't necessarily bad, but still it, it it's striking to, you know, use, um, <laughs> I, I don't think that people would like cancel Hamilton because of that or cancel Lin-Manuel Miranda, but it would be, it feels much more dangerous. Like just from a funding perspective, I think a lot of people would be like, oh, I don't know. You know, the backers might not feel quite as eager to uh, put something out there that, you know, grabs race as this, you know, um, conveyor of meaning in the same way <laughs> that they were willing to in the Obama era, where I think people were a little bit more willing to be experimental about stuff like that. Yeah, I, uh, the, the, yes, I, I mean, I think, I, I just think there, um, there's every reason to think that after the Trump election, which I think actually Hamilton had something to do with on a sort of poetic level, um, the, um, the, uh, the conversation would have been different the reaction would would have been different and when you say it got in under the wire i think that's exactly right uh, i think it was it was a it was a, a a good bet to make um during the obama administration and and the same the same bet would 
would maybe not pay off at, at this time. Well, I just think that, you know, speaking as somebody who is currently sort of developing a thing uh, that touches, you know, really explicitly on questions of um, race and uh, has certain sort of sociological uh, elements to it that that suddenly are, are controversial. You know, it, that's a tough line to walk right now. Um, and the people who fund things, you know, it's, there's a real open question about whether they're going to be willing to do that. I think that in the next few years, uh, we're going to, we are maybe going to end up with a spate of entertainment that feels much more safe than some of the stuff that has been done. I think that, you know, the people who, who make, who just not the artists themselves, but the people who, um, who fund film and television are going to want to take a great big step back from controversy over the next few years. You know, it's an interesting thing right now to see all of these, uh, TV and uh, well, TV shows particularly um, and distributors of television shows pull any episodes that are potentially offensive along racial or um, ideological lines, like anything that might get people really angry. South Park has removed all of their religiously offensive. Um, not all of their religiously, but a lot of their religiously offensive material, uh, just this last week. And there's been this whole <laughs> spate of television shows that have been, um, uh, memory holding episodes that had blackface in them, which there are so many of them weirdly that, you know, it's like so many of them did that all in this very specific way, which is we're going to show blackface in the name of uh, showing how wrong and bad it is. It's like the portrayal of racist behavior in order to criticize racist behavior. Um, that is suddenly, you know, everyone's like, ah, we can't do this. This was a bad idea. You know, um, you know, thir <laughs> Tina Fey shows 30 Rock and Kimmy Schmidt both did that, but also um, uh, Community pulled um an episode uh mr show with bob and david uh bob odenkirk and david cross's show they they did one for netflix like a reboot of that that had a sketch in it with that had blackface in it um and all of these have been yanked uh and it, in every case the whole point of it was this is offensive and disgusting look how clueless this person is for doing this thing you know, the punchline being like, this is awful, but, uh, you know, nobody wants to defend that anymore, understandably. This is a moment where, uh, well, it's like what we were talking uh, Well, it doesn't matter. Uh, you know, nobody wants to touch that. And, uh, and so for all of that, it's like, I think that it just shows this interesting kind of, you know, uh, 
lack of will to do something that is potentially offensive or controversial. I think that that's going to go across, you know, the entertainment industry. And again, is, uh, you know, one of the reasons that Hamilton is going to, I think, stand out as this interesting odd little artifact that, you know, was at the same time, as you know, was uh, both mainstream and also daring in interesting ways. Peaked out there. <laughs> and then... Well, and that, uh, that's one of the interesting pieces of this, is to go, uh, to go back to Disney, is is how this piece came up um, and sort of how it was developed versus its current reception now. Where, right. where Di- Disney Disney has decided that that it's um it it, it fits putting the brand. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And it, it it's and it doesn't feel weird at all. It feels nope. entirely on brand, but that's amazing. Yep. It's yeah. It's what, unbelievable. You're right. I mean, this thing that really was developed as this extremely daring, um, you know, uh, piece of experimental theater. Uh, that that you know went from the public to Broadway in New York, um, you know, from this sort of marginal place to to the most mainstream of mainstream championed by again the largest entertainment company on earth slash in the history of the world, and is like the, they're pushing it hard like those commercials that they have for the uh for the broadcast for the show um that they're putting up it like opens with the disney castle you know what i mean i mean they are like you know while disney bringing you hamilton if you enjoy the work of sweet tea shakespeare you can find us all over the socials we're on facebook we have a special secret facebook community group that we'd love for you to join uh, we're on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, you name it. We're on it. We're even starting TikTok. Uh, so join us, click in, give us a like, uh, and we'll look forward to seeing you in all of those places. If you'd like to contact us, we urge you to do so at ours at sweetteashakespeare.com. That's H-O-U-R-S at sweetteashakespeare.com. It's just fascinating because... Hamilton couldn't happen today, you know, if it was starting from scratch. Um, And yet it is as mainstream as mainstream gets is still wildly beloved and will be for decades. You know, uh, it's this interesting contradiction, right? This thing that you couldn't do again. Um, And yet is the you know, most uh, is the sort of most mainstream distillation of popular culture in the world at this moment. I mean, it's like this, it really sort of encapsulates the weird split personality psychosis well, of our and, moment. And it's also, I mean, to be uncharitable for a minute, this is what, this is what white people do. They, <laughs> They take good art by people from uh, uh, of of other 
places. Uh, 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 and I don't mean places. I mean of no, other I, backgrounds, of other skin color, of other uh, cultures, and they they um, make it theirs. They and and so some of the move to Disney is um I'm I mean I'm glad it's blessed by the creator. Don't get me wrong. I hope that I wish the guy more than blessed by the creator. I mean, Lin Manuel Miranda has walked into a willing partnership yeah yeah i'm uh, but but i'm I'm thinking more broadly than disney actually i I mean good for disney um given its history um and taking the opportunity here to rewrite some of that history i think is is good for them i have have no complaints whatsoever but um one of the one of the alarm bells that always goes off for me with hamilton these days is is um the sort of whiteification of of the response to it, not the piece, but like, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's yuppie high school kids competing for tickets at, at $650 a pop in the suburbs. That's the problem. And actually the great thing about the Disney Lin-Manuel release right now is, is that it's once again, like the piece itself, subverting that. Yeah, I mean, it, he has spoken to that actually as well. Like part of his reason for doing the the album, the soundtrack album, the way that he did, was that he was a theater kid, said growing up, but his family didn't have lots of money to go see shows on Broadway, uh, and so the main way that he engaged with theater was through the soundtracks. Which again, you know. It, in that moment means the Les Mis soundtrack means the Phantom of the Opera soundtrack means cats means like, as well as like older ones, but the contemporary ones from when he was a child were these like sung through soundtracks that had the entire show on them. And that was how he, you know, um, became conversant in, in the form. And so there is a real, you know, that was part of the reason that he wanted to put out the soundtrack the way that he did to make it available to everybody who he knows aren't going to be able to afford $400 seats to see his shows. But yeah, the Disney Plus move really is that too. It's like families who could never conceivably afford tickets, which are cheaper now than they ever have been, but still not cheap. You know, if you're going to see touring productions of that show, uh, can afford a seven to nine dollar a month subscription to Disney Plus and are gonna see it there where it will be forever. Um and you know that is interesting. I mean the racial aspect of this is is fascinating. I and a lot of the pushback that you see right now I uh, I remember reading someone on Twitter who uh you know, said he's always skeptical of uh, of any time that a white audience, like you know, uh, wildly embraces a piece of art from people of color, he always becomes very suspicious of it, <laughs> of that art, and has to go back and see what is it about the, this that is attracting all these people. And he says inevitably he finds something to not feel very comfortable with. And the fact of it is like Hamilton really does celebrate uh, America in this really unironic and unambiguous way. Like, you know, an America that's flawed. Yes. You know, but again, it's the Obama 
approach to, to America, that the American dream is still good and worth believing in. Um, but, you know, for for all of our flaws and whatnot, the core of it is still good. And that is fundamentally at odds with um, a lot of what you see in the streets right now in our current moment. You know, the the um, idea uh, that America is not fundamentally good and needs to be remade in fundamental ways. Uh, that is uh, that's the message of this moment. And it seems to be, uh, you know. And so it's interesting, you know, Hamilton is this thing that is beloved of white people and maybe and it's not like I mean, I don't want to overstate this and I'm obviously not a person of color, so I'm not somebody who's speaking for anybody. But if you look around, you can see that there is a little bit more um, ambivalence portrayed by, you know, in certain communities uh, about it for all that. I mean, you remember, like, what's fascinating is, like, the number of, um, and I, I think that clearly the people involved in the show have some, <laughs> feel, again, some ambivalence about this, but it's a show that's beloved by, uh, you know, mainstream political figures on on the right. You know, uh, I remember all of the stories about how, like, uh, this is Dick Cheney's favorite musical, right? He loves Hamilton when he went to see it. And, um, like, the string of uh, Republican politicians, which is not to say all Republicans are white and that all Republicans, like, hate black people or anything like that. Um, but the people who made the show are self-identified unambiguously on the left in terms of their politics. Uh, so it's fascinating that this show was clearly beloved by people on the right. And then you have John Bolton uh, releasing his uh, book this week, uh, you know, <laughs> with, and the title is a reference to uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda's, you know, song from Hamilton, The Room Where It Happened. You know, I think that there's, a, I mean, it just captures the weird ambivalence of this moment. But I also think that that's like due to the fact that Miranda's like illustration of politics and the way that politics works is actually something that politicians recognize as being true, like regardless of their political affiliation. If we're going to sort of take it away from the ideological, uh, you know, they that song in particular, the room where it happens. Um, I've heard many politicians and also media personalities who, you know, follow politics say that it's the most sort of honest encapsulation of of the drive to be in politics and the way that politics works that I, they've ever heard. I, I remember uh, John Dickerson from 60 Minutes, political reporter, um, you know, with a storied history, said that. At the time, he said, I, you know, I've never seen like the idea of politics, uh, the way that politics works condensed in such a, you know, <laughs> coherent and uh, snappy way before. <laughs> and I mean, that's that's part of and Lin-Manuel Miranda's father was a politician. So, I mean, that all makes sense that he has a grounding in that. But it's an amazing piece of art. You know, it, you can have conversations about it forever. That's great. I saw it on Broadway. Um, I guess it's been three years ago or so. Um, 
John Lithgow was like five rows down from me with his grandkid. That's wild. And, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it, like, um, I mean, I knew the whole show at that point. Um, I was expecting to be whelmed, you know, like, yeah. uh, just cause I, I knew it. I'd seen the photos. I knew what, how it was going to be staged. And there's still a sequence in act two, um, from hurricane to burn that just took the air out of the room. Just phenomenal. That's interesting because like the staging must be something pretty special on there because that's actually kind of a lull in the soundtrack, mm -hmm. that se sequence. So I suppose it makes sense that they must be doing something pretty impressive with the uh, staging to make that. Well, the staging's the, the staging's really great. Um, they have um, concentric turntables that that go in opposite directions, and and so they can do some things with Hurricane there that were pretty fantastic. But not all. But also, despite having all that technology, um, still sort of hitting the minimalist, um, um, checking that box. Yeah. Um, but. I just I, I found the the it just becomes less about um, uh, flash there and more about um, a pretty hard look at at a couple of those characters and uh, are just really great. That's um, cool. Yeah, I'm excited to see it. I have not seen the show yet. We uh, had bought tickets um, this year to see the touring company in L.A. Um, as I said, like it's the first time I think this year is the first time that tickets really became something on par with what you would pay to see most shows, you know, uh, elsewhere. Uh, and then all the uh productions got canceled because of our horrendous coronavirus here. So we'll be seeing the Disney Plus one before I ever see it live. Um, but that's okay. Be interesting. It's interesting the way that kids really uh, are aware of it too. Like my ten-year-old daughter um, is super enthused to see it, and it's a object of tremendous interest with kids her age. Which again, you know, has not been true of a piece of theater since the '80s. I think like that you could find something. Yeah, like common movies. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I remember, <laughs> but you know, I, but that's the thing. It's like, it's comparable to sort of the, the way that kids in the eighties and nineties, like, you know, were obsessive about Les Mis or Phantom of the Opera or, uh, cats. Um, you know, uh, but but on a much larger scale, right? I mean, because that was sort of still for all the popularity of those pieces of work, we're still confined to, you know, theater nerds or, you know, the, the people who played those soundtracks forever. And that's just not where we are right now. Is there anybody else who's like comparable in in terms of like anything else in theater? I mean, there was a weird little boomlet like. People tried to sort of suggest that Dear Evan Hansen also had some uh, comparable sort of effect on pop culture among teenagers, but I'm sort of skeptical on that claim. In fact, they they actually embrace it. Like uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda did a series of sort of um, 
of uh, supplementary songs for the soundtrack that he released over the course of a year um, that were variations or alternate songs that didn't make it into the show or just different interesting things. And he was a whole uh, medley like combination of a song from Dear Evan Hansen and uh, it and uh, and one of the songs from Hamilton together uh, with Ben Platt, who was the star of that show, like singing with. Was it Lemmy Well Miranda? Yeah, it is. yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. two of them singing together. Uh, yeah, I think uh, for for my money, Dear Evan Hansen is is huge, and its its impact is mostly theater. Yeah, um, and whereas whereas I think Hamilton is impact is everywhere, um, yeah. like all aspects of pop culture, and um, yeah, I mean, the only thing that I hear people singing. Um, like, like, uh, I mean, it's, is, are, are those two shows yeah. and, um, and Greatest Showman, um, <laughs> which is also written by the Dear Evan yeah, Hansen. Yeah, yeah. Guys. Um, and those it's, songs. um, uh, and yeah, I mean, I don't know, some, you know, it, it's weird. It's weird how these musicals have infected things for the first time after a, a, a pretty sizable break you know right right yeah i mean again like the last time that there was a bump like this i think was rent and then there was just like nothing for a long time and now this funny little boomlet i don't know i it's hard for me to get a handle on the pop culture of the moment with like what kids are gonna like and stuff but i it, it's a strange mix of cultural influences that young people right now are absorbing. You know what I mean? Like this sort of odd, you know, theater geeky moment uh, combined with, you know, everything else that's happening in the world. It's like, I don't know, taste in the next 20 years. is going to be fascinating to see how that all like works itself out. But, uh, yeah, what do you think the chances are that Hamlet sticks around for the next, you know, 60 years that people will be doing that show? Um, 60 years might be a little long, but... Um, might be. I, uh, and again, how old is Oklahoma? Yeah, well, it's, it's older than that, right? It's like... Uh, 80, will this have... 70 years? Um, yeah. There are productions yeah. of Oklahoma happening all I mean, over the place. In terms of its, in terms of its importance, and 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 uh, importance and sort of um, feed, as being a feature of study, mm-hmm. I, I think it's it's here forever. Um, I do wonder if uh, I I do think it it will age. I don't right, think it's aging yet. Yeah, well, I don't know. I mean, I think it is. I think it is already aging for some of the reasons that we've talked about. And the thing that I'm going to be the most interested to watch is when, you know, community theater productions of this show start happening and they will in the next 20 years or so uh, sometime in that period, Uh, high schools and community theaters and, you know, theaters at all levels are going to start doing Hamilton. Uh, I am curious to see if the um, sort of the element of the, the the racial element of the casting continues to uh, 
persist. Uh, you know, to what extent is that written into the text in a way that uh, people are going to be compelled by the company to maintain, you know, um, because who are, because there are plays that get published that way, right? Like this play, this must be played by a person of X race, you know, or, or if it'll be entirely open. My suspicion based on things that I've heard uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda say uh, is that it will probably be left open. Um, and then it will be interesting to see how the play uh, plays when that ceases to be a dominant uh, feature of its presentation. Because inevitably, it'll be difficult to maintain. Um, it'll just, you know, when it goes out into the world, given the extent of its popularity, it will be difficult to maintain the sort of racial makeup of the cast as currently constituted when it's being done in high schools in very, you know, white communities. Uh, in addition to, you know, other places where it is actually possible to maintain that. And I, um, I just think it'll be interesting. I, and, you know, and that, you know, being such a sort of locus of discussion around it initially, when that's taken out of the mix, what'll that do to the show? Uh, it's an interesting question. And one I suppose we'll find out assuming that society continues to exist for the next 20 years, which is... Fingers crossed. Yeah. We'll see. All right, man. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Talk I'll you see you in a couple weeks. All right, dude. Have a good trip. We'll talk about all of the things that I'm supposed to watch now. Okay. <laughs> Have fun. We'll talk Bye. to you later. Okay. Bye. You've been listening to the Sweet Tea Shakespeare After Hours. Thanks for joining us and for being a patron of Sweet Tea Shakespeare. Catch you next time.